welcome to this week's episode of What She Did Next. I'm your host, Jackie Uwe, and I also produce the show. In this series, we talk to women across different industries about a big career or life change they made, how it came about, and where it took them next. Today is a bit of a highlights episode as we take a short break from our usual conversations. I know we're all adjusting to quite a different world at the moment, and I hope you are all doing okay. I also just wanted to say a huge thank you for all of your support of the show so far. It has been quite overwhelming, but also very exciting to read your reviews, your tweets, comments, and DMs since we launched earlier this year. Of course, it was my hope that people would find these conversations not only interesting, but helpful in some way. So it does bring me great joy to know that these stories are resonating with so many of you and that you're particularly finding them to be a source of much-needed inspiration right now. If you're a regular listener of the show, you'll know that we're all about women making brave choices to start a new chapter in their lives and careers. And if you're wondering what you might get out of these conversations, I thought this tweet from one of our listeners summed it up very nicely. Karen says, Even though what she did next is about women, it applies to anyone reinventing themselves. It's about resilience, following passion, learning, self-belief, courage, determination, and the leap of faith. So important now. So without further ado, here are some of the highlights from Season 1, and you'll find the full episodes in our feed. If you've ever dreamed about moving to a tropical island, you'll love our first conversation with travel executive turned entrepreneur, Kelly Stanbury, the co-founder of Social Enterprise, 300 Islands. Kelly's story of relocating to Fiji with her hubby, their two young kids and their dog Larry has proved to be a favourite among our listeners. So what was it like living in Fiji and how did Kelly spend her time there? Here's Kelly. I guess a lot of people who are listening might have the um, impression of Fiji from from TV or from postcards or, or brochures or advertisements. Um, and it is very much like that. It does, you know, it's a beautiful destination for a holiday. And when you live there, though, and a lot of people do say this, that when they get from Nandi Airport and they go through Nandi Town or, or, or get out um, to any other places around Nandi, that you can really see the stark contrast between um, uh, rich and poor. And it's, um, yeah, it's a developing nation. So, you know, it, it has a very different architecture, if you would even use the word architecture, it's it has um, uh, village style life is still really alive and well and, and living strongly in Fiji, which you, which you can see. And so that's a wonderful experience to show children who've come out of such a developed nation. So when I left school, I did a, a very basic travel and tourism course and got into the career I wanted to get into and, and did really well at that. But one of my, um, and I don't like the word regrets, but one of the things I always felt that was missing for me was was a degree. Um, I wanted to learn more and, I, and I'd, um, I'd often considered doing an MBA while I was working and the company I worked for did support that type of thing, um, but I never it never happened. So I thought here's the perfect opportunity for me to do this in an environment where I can really sink myself into the study and, and you know, with a genuine thought of actually finding something out of that that might take me on a different journey within my career. And I did it, it was from a school here in Australia, in South Australia, and it was a fast-tracked MBA. So it meant 
And I, I sort of took a, I took a, a corporate approach to it, I guess, um, for someone who's living on a remote island. <laughs> I would drop the children off to daycare in the morning and then come home and spend all day doing my study. And I started learning uh, and learning about social enterprise as well and how you can – and I, I was really taken by that because, you know, there's the, I believe, uh, you know, and, and, and certainly learned that there's a way that you can create business that has multiple wins for everybody involved in the supply chain. And it's okay to be a for-profit and do that. In our next conversation, we heard from Sally Woodward-Hawes a graphic designer who followed a unique path into natural perfumery at a time when there were very few people making natural fragrances in Australia or around the world. Ten years on, Sally's business has grown, along with people's appetite for non-synthetic products, and her signature perfumes are in high demand. So what was it that first sparked Sally's interest in the world of scent? And what makes her brand aromantic stand out from the crowd? Here's Sally. When I, if I go back to like when I was younger, when I was at high school, I was never really into perfume and stuff like that. I wasn't one of the girls that was like wearing, you know, all the designer perfume of the times <laughs> or anything like that. But what actually happened was, so my mum passed away when I was 17. And a couple of years after that, I actually inherited her cosmetics case. And I was just sitting at home one day and I hadn't opened it for a couple of years and I opened it and suddenly smelling the perfumes that she used to wear, it was exactly as though she was kind of beside me. Um, So it was a very, very powerful experience for me and it was one where it made me realise that scent is um, probably the most instantaneous of our senses in terms of connecting us to like a past memory or a past uh, a place where we've been and that really that obviously that had a huge impact on me and it I became really interested in fragrance and how it can connect to memory so that was how I kind of got into the whole yeah that's such a beautiful story (laughs) definitely 10 years ago when I started so I launched in 2010 only people using natural fragrances, I think, were people who were shopping in like hippie kind of health food stores. <laughs> and it was very much part of that realm. And one of my things when I first launched the business was that I did not want it to be that at all. So my thing was to differentiate it and for natural perfume to be recognized as fragrance in its own right. We then jumped into the world of politics with Lysia Heath the CEO of Women for Election Australia. If you find yourself despairing at the state of politics in Australia, this is one conversation you will find very refreshing. So what's Women for Election all about? And how did Lysia, who started her career in the corporate world, end up running for office in a former Prime Minister's seat? Here's Lysia. The whole idea behind Women for Election is to make what is currently a very opaque process which is how you would get involved in politics and even potentially run more transparent Mm. on the basis that the more transparent it is, the more accessible it is, and the more people get themselves involved in the process, particularly women. Could you literally come to politics from any background? Absolutely. In fact, we need you to. That diversity of 
experience is what is so critical. If you've had experience with Centrelink before or aged care or superannuation or nursing or teaching, you have an extraordinary base of which to draw on to then understand about how things can be improved. It was August 24th and I was having 18 people at a dinner party and it was the only conversation of everyone there just saying, have you heard the news? Because it's about 6pm by that stage and, you know, Prime Minister's had a bullet put in him and, you know, what next? And it was it was quite an amazing experience because I had been attending all these women for election events and I had thought in my mind, this is something that I want to do at some point, whether that's in three years, six years, 12 years, I don't know, but I'm gathering information now for, for when I do it. Then this scenario happened in my own seat and all the stuff was flashing in my mind about every speaker we'd ever had at our events, be they retired or current female politicians, and they kept emphasising over and over and over these two things. Timing is everything. If you're going to do this, timing is everything. And you will never feel ready. Step forward anyway. We had a huge response to our chat with Dr. Robin Miller, who is a paediatric doctor by day and also the founder of a new online course called The Mental Load Project. Like many women, Robin experienced the overwhelm of the mental load after returning to work as a new mum. When she couldn't find the support she needed, Robin decided to draw on her own skills and experience to develop some strategies for her and her partner to share the mental load in a more equal way. Here's Robin. So initially I really enjoyed being back at work. I went back part-time, I had a really good job share partner uh, and I enjoyed sort of the balance of having a couple of days at home with Hannah and a couple of days at work where I'd be you know, applying my brain in, in different ways and getting back to, I guess, my role as a doctor and something, I guess, from an identity point of view, I'd always held on to um, and was an important part of, of who I was. I think what changed and what I realized, though, was um, looking at the way it is as a working mum compared to being a working dad, there's a lot more juggle that you seem to feel being the working mum compared to being the working dad and that was in part because I was working part-time and my husband was working full-time but even beyond that I could notice that I had sort of inadvertently in the six months off taken on a lot of a lot more of the organizational things and I knew where things were and I knew Hannah's routines and I knew when she was about to outgrow her clothes and noticed that and repacked up the other clothes and all of that sort of work is what I guess I'd taken on and then once I was back at work in a you know in a paid employment sense I wanted to try and work out a way to readjust that. I still wanted to get through my specialty training I still had all these career goals that I wanted to meet and I could just see that if we didn't work out a better balance, that I would end up sort of taking the back seat rather than just taking, you know, a seat alongside. And that was what really drove me to look into 
how to manage the mental load and how to make a relationship with two working parents more even and more fair for us. And I think that there do have to be changes and allowances and priorities that shift when you have a family. Um, But I just think that it has to be a deliberate change and a deliberate shift and be worked out as a couple what that will look like for your family rather than just an automatic sort of assumption that a lot of that emotional labor just falls to the mother and the wife. We recorded a very special episode in the lead up to International Women's Day with Jennifer Whitwer, an internationally acclaimed gender expert who had the most fascinating and sometimes harrowing stories to tell about her decades of service in the Australian military, the barriers she's broken through, and writing her first book, Against the Wind, for other women working in male-dominated organisations. Here's Jennifer. I've been toying with the idea of writing a book for about five years, uh, and, I, and I just sort of thought, well, who wants to read my story about my career? But what I realised was that um, there was a lot more to the story than just my story. And it was really about what I had learnt over the years about being a woman in a male-dominated organisation. And I had been sharing bits and pieces of it uh, at various workshops and that I was running for women or in, in mentoring sessions that I was doing with women or even just talking about uh, my career and what I had learned from it. And I thought, well, this is silly. I really should pull all this together um, and uh, kind of just create it. it. It actually sort of formed itself. It evolved into a bit of a model, um, which I call the be what you can't see model. And that comes out of um, uh, an article that was written about me in 2018 that was um, published in the Sydney Morning Herald, uh, in which I said uh, that it was really important that where there are no role models for women, of which there are still many um, contexts and organisations and situations where there are no role models, that someone that, that a woman has to step up and be that person for the first time. My view is that having taken up so many roles and so many instances where I've had to be the first woman to do something, um, or taking opportunities and just getting on with them, um, and you know, high visibility projects and things like that, and just saying yes and just getting on and doing it, um, resulted in me sort of this telling women that it's really important that you, you you can be what you can't see. And I was fortunate to meet Tarana Burke in 2017. She's essentially the founder of the Me Too movement, and she is doing exactly what I'm doing, which is supporting women. Um, in her case, women of uh, sexual violence. And uh, she was just an absolutely awesome woman to listen to. When you hear about the work that she's doing, which is putting the spotlight back on the men who are perpetrating this, the, you know, this kind of behaviour, supporting the women who are coming forward. I mean, it's just absolutely fantastic that it, in the last couple of days we've seen the verdicts in the Weinstein case, um, mm. you know, where he's been found guilty of a number of um, offences and will spend a few years in jail. Now, that's a great outcome. Uh, in a you know in a in a society and times when often women are not believed, where there is that power imbalance, uh, so I think there's been a bit of a change, and I think the Me Too movement has really allowed women to step up and speak about these experiences and start to hold people to account. Next up was freelance travel writer Rachel Lees, who has a job title many of us dream about, but as we discovered from talking to Rach. It's definitely not one big holiday. Rachel only recently returned to Australia, 
after six years of living and working in Singapore, where she made the leap to freelance life, and she's now in demand with some of the top travel publications in the world. So what did it take to get there? Here's Rach. It's a brutal game, freelancing. If you don't pitch, you don't get stories. Especially at the beginning, you have to pitch hard, often, constantly. But when it pays off, it pays off really well. And I can't tell you the number of times that I cold pitched an editor and got a job out of it. And, you know, from the outside, it it does look like a bit of a dream job. Um, you know, looking at your Instagram, it's all very beautiful. <laughs> but I know from my own stint of writing travel stories, it can be a bit isolating. Yeah. You know, you're often traveling on your own. You're not really, you know, you're not there to live it up as such. You're researching, you're gathering info, you're mm. stressing whether you've got, you know, all the photos that you need. I mean, it is still work. So what, what are some of the harder aspects of the job that we might not see on your social media? Yeah. I mean, it, I preface this by saying it's a dream job in many ways and I'm incredibly grateful for it, but it is tough. Well, first and foremost, you are by yourself. You're not taking your partner with you and or friends with you and on the very rare occasions you might get to take a partner or a friend with you, you're still working. Most days I'm up and out of the hotel by 8 and not back till 10 and I have not stopped all day. And when I'm doing these really fun things like, you know, I did a microlight flight over Angkor Wat, for example, (laughs) I'm in a tiny little open airplane with a parachute wing and a motor mower engine behind me was nuts. (laughs) But I wasn't just sitting back going, oh, my God, this is such an insane experience. I was also taking notes and taking photos at the same time, and trying to interview the pilot. Right. So, <laughs> Whilst not distracting well, him too much. Yeah. <laughs> we also chatted with Meg Black, who stepped away from a long and successful career as a jewellery designer to start her own pre-loved clothing business called Robe and Crown. Inspired by the slow fashion movement, Meg is encouraging people to rethink how we shop, to be a little gentler to our planet. And she also has a great tip for anyone who might be facing a redundancy or not working right now about the government assistance program that she used to help start her business. Here's Meg. The fast fashion that was appearing on the market and and the throwaway society that we were creating wasn't sitting well with me. So in that time I'd been buying secondhand for a while and people would ask me, where I got what I was wearing and, and that sort of thing. And, and I'd, ha- I'd tell them it was all pre-loved and there was really no need to buy new. There were, yeah, for whatever reason, whether it be monetary and environmental reasons started to play a big part in, in my psyche as far as that was concerned. Just the fast fashion that was happening and the synthetic fibers that were flooding the market around the place was really just starting to insult my sensibilities I couldn't I couldn't handle the feel of synthetics after a while and the smell of them um and I learned too that that synthetic fibers shed microplastics all their life so every time you put them in the washing machine they're shedding those microplastics that end up in our waterways and they're really damaging to the environment I was reading how to manage your redundancy and what to do and what not to do. I didn't want to blow all my money all at once. I wanted to have this relaxed little break and then move forward from there. 
So I thought I'd better pop into Centrelink and maybe just get a healthcare card to see if that could save me a little bit of money through this time until I'm working again. And when I popped in there, they suggested that I might be eligible for for new start allowance. And I said, oh, I don't want that because I'm looking to do my own business. And they said, oh, well, have you, is it a new business that you're starting and da-da-da. So we had this conversation and they brought up the fact that there was a program called NICE, which is the New Enterprise Incentive Scheme. And they support you basically for the first nine or ten months monetarily and they put you through pretty much a cert three in business, small business, micro business. So that's what I did, which was really exciting. I thought I'd done a business plan. I hadn't done a business plan. <laughs> I'd scratched the surface. Um, so pretty much that's that's where you start with your cert three in micro business is, is doing, writing your business plan. And the research that that got me to do was just phenomenal. Mm. Um, opened my eyes to what this business could be and how it's, it's, there's such a movement. There's so many people moving towards a sustainable way to shop and pre-loved is one of those. And in our most recent conversation with Sally Hetherington, CEO of the charity Human and Hope Australia, we heard about her experience of volunteering overseas as many young Australians do, what she learned about the impact of volunteerists on local communities, and why she's now on a mission to ensure other people don't make the same mistakes she did. And she's received an Order of Australia medal in the process. Here's Sally. So I was a volunteerist, which is a term a lot of people would hear nowadays, and that's short-term or one-off volunteering overseas. And so for one month, I was at a residential centre for former street children and Every time I tell this story, I honestly, I can't remember what I did. I think I did a little bit of teaching. I did a lot of teaching the Hannah Montana dance, but (laughs) the biggest impact that I had, it was on myself. It wasn't actually on those kids because looking back, what I realized what they needed was consistent Cambodian role models, not me, a stranger coming in and helping them. There was this revolving door of volunteerists and I realized that local people, are the subject matter experts. They're the ones that know the community and culture well, and they are there for the long term. And if we don't have local people running their own organisations, it's just not sustainable. In Australia, especially school students and university students are targeted by volunteerism companies who are promising them this amazing life-changing experience. And yes, it is life-changing for the students going over, but we have to think about all these unintended consequences. So I'm lucky to be able to get out to universities and workplaces and service clubs and talk to them about my personal journey and then discuss why is building a house in Cambodia possibly not the best idea? Why is going and playing with kids in an orphanage in Nepal not the best idea? Why should you not go and teach English? And so we discuss those and it really opens up people's minds. I would say for every 10 people I talk to, probably eight get it. The other two still want to do it. And I I do understand that because it is very fulfilling to go and volunteer in a country, but we need to be not putting ourselves first, which is why the book which was published last year that I wrote is called It's Not About Me. So that's it for today's episode. 
I just wanted to say again, thank you so much for listening. And to all of the women who have joined me for conversations on the show, thank you so much for coming on this podcast ride with me and for trusting me with your stories. I look forward to sharing more inspiring conversations with you all soon. You can now find us online at our new website, whatshedidnext.com.au. Please feel free to get in touch if you have any questions about the show or would like to inquire about sponsoring an episode or recommending a guest. If you're enjoying these conversations, it would mean a lot if you could help spread the word. Tell a friend about us, share a link, or leave us a nice rating and review. And if you have any questions about today's episode, please feel free to get in touch. You can find us on Instagram at What She Did Next Podcast. What She Did Next is produced and hosted by me, Jackie Uwe. Thanks for listening.